If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. This woman, this putrid soul, she's at the heart of it all, all of what's to come. Her name is Miriam Bell, and she will cause unspeakable harm. Our earliest date in regards to Miriam's life is 1934. Presumably by this time, she was at least a young woman, and she was deeply ingrained into a mysterious cult called the Eternal Order of the Second Death. Miriam was to be the heart of a ritual meant to create a doorway for demons to pass through, with their ultimate goal being to usher forth the Antichrist itself. It was a rite called the Second Death. An area was prepared with symbols of hell drawn upon the floor. An impure vessel was brought into the area and the enigmatic ritual began. Participants imbibed powerful drugs. The impure vessel had a mask placed upon their face, which would then be marked up with a ceremonial dagger. If all went as planned, removing the bloodied mask would reveal underneath a hell portal. And in the case of Miriam Bell, it worked. On March 19, 1934, Miriam Bell experienced the second death, and cultists began passing newborn babies through the portal on her face. They did this for four days. Seven babies in total went through, and on March 23, 1934, a tiny hand reached out of the hell portal on Miriam Bell's face. What came out was a little baby boy that appeared to be a normal human baby, and they gave it a normal human name, Gary Miller. And Gary was raised to be a normal human being, just like you and me. Though Miriam had experienced the second death, she lived on. From the hell portal on her face came other demons, but the Antichrist did not appear. The Eternal Order of the Second Death continued to search her ways to summon it to Earth. They experimented, victimized, sacrificed, and tortured their way around the Northeast United States, yet they were never really found out. Their brutality and dedication to their cause never ceased through the coming years. As normal human being Gary Miller grew up, it became clear that he would be the one to lead them when he came of age. But until he was ready, it was Miriam Bell herself who retained a seat of leadership and authority within the cult. Gary would call her mother, and her cruelty knew no bounds. In the 1950s, an incident took place in Sterling, Connecticut. Well, two, actually. Both at Snake Meadow Hill Church. The first incident involved six orphans in a cornfield. Strange animal-like sounds had been heard coming from the cornfield at night, though it was assumed to maybe be a coyote. After a few nights of this, staff had found the church dog, Greta, torn apart in the field, and they told the children to stay away from it. But for some reason, the children wouldn't listen. They were found torn to pieces around the church. After the deaths, most of the staff left the church, but the grisly deaths were just sort of covered up to avoid a scandal and unwanted attention. Eventually, new staff would be sent to the church. Some years later, in the latter part of the 1950s, the church was restored and ready to be fully operational once again. All that was needed was someone who could tend to the orphans that the church was preparing to receive. They found their answer with a woman who came highly recommended. She was called Sister Bell, and there were six orphans in total who would be coming under her care at the church. Without a doubt, it was Miriam Bell herself that the demon in the cornfield came from. The eternal order of the second death had been behind those terrible deaths, and they had been watching the church, planning for something. Though it's hard to pin down the exact details, one of the orphan children was a little guy named John Ward. He couldn't have been more than five years old at the time. His mother, Meredith, had fallen ill and passed away. During her illness, John had prayed and prayed for his mother to be saved, but it didn't work. After her death, he was sent here. He made friends with a little girl named Lisa Pearson, 
but it's hard to say that John found moments of happiness in this new life. At first, Miriam Bell was seen as a cheerful and highly engaged individual. She took wonderful care of the children and she was highly attentive. She would dote on them, take them out for walks, and tell them stories deep into the night. But other church staff also noticed some odd behavior in Sister Bell. She would take the kids outside and instruct them to do strange dances around her while she wordlessly stared at the sky. Another time, the children stood in a straight line in front of the cornfield, staring into it while Sister Bell said something to them. One morning, the church overseer, Father Clark, noted that staff had found very creepy life-sized stick dolls around the church. It was assumed to be hoodlums or local weirdos, but what seemed to bother him most were that two of the orphans, twins, they were fixated on the stick dolls. Then Father Clark started having a reoccurring nightmare. He dreamt that people were in the cornfields, staring towards the church, their bodies painted red. Not long after this, four of the children and Sister Miriam Bell went missing, and an old nun was found murdered. The detective sent to investigate was an older man nearing retirement, but his age didn't slow him down. He walked the grounds of the church, and he took to driving the surrounding roads at night. The two remaining children were John and Lisa. When questioned about Sister Bell, they said that she was still here and that the detective should just ask her his questions. Father Clark took to joining the detective on his night drives, but they never found the four missing children or Sister Bell. Hell broke loose deep into the night. At 2 a.m., staff in the church and the detective were woken up by the sounds of an old woman's mad cackling. When they found the source, it seemed to be coming from a painting of the Virgin Mary. And then they heard a disturbance coming from the chapel. Only Father Clark and the detective dared to approach. All others fled. When they got there, they found Sister Miriam Bell dragging the twin orphans down into the basement, two of the four missing children. The detective drew his weapon intent on pursuing the woman, but Father Clark stopped him. He told the detective that this was a matter for God, and he went ahead alone, sealing the basement opening behind him. The detective waited in the chapel for Father Clark to come back, but then the noises began. If ever he doubted before, this brought certainty to the detective. The devil was real. Before he fled the chapel, he left behind a note warning all who would ever come here to never go down into that basement. As for Father Clark, once he entered the basement, his watch, it stopped working. Time seemed to stop down there. He knew he had to find and face Sister Bell, but he would claim no victory here. The darkness of the prison before him was maddening, and the screams of a demon caused his ears to bleed. It's not known how far he made it through that basement, but his life ended down there. The four children were not saved. Sister Bell was not stopped. The eternal order of the second death was kept a secret still. Whatever horrible ritual they wished to carry out was done. Everyone who was at Snake Meadow Hill Church was haunted by that night, even if they didn't witness what took place in the chapel. An unnamed person, perhaps the detective, perhaps another staff member, couldn't stand the uncertainty of it. And five years later, they went back to see what became of the church. They wondered if they would find the children, if they would see the old church dogs still there, if they would find the thing in the cornfield. When they got there, they couldn't even find the old gravesite of the original lost children anymore. The place was hollow and devoid of anything good. They walked the church grounds and eventually the cornfield itself. The old scarecrow was still there, as haunting and mocking as ever. But then they felt something behind them, a presence that brought horror, but they couldn't walk away. They mustered up their courage and turned to look. 
What they saw, somehow staring back at them, was one of the doomed children. They fled the field and the old church grounds, but their memory was consumed by what they saw. The child didn't have a face. It was just a bloody, gaping hole. The two orphans that did make it out, John Ward and Lisa Pearson, they didn't escape that place untouched. Their interactions with Miriam Bell left them marked, eventually referred to as husks. The eternal order of the second death undoubtedly kept tabs on them. They didn't die that night with the other children, but that didn't mean that they had escaped their fates. In the meantime, John and Lisa lived their lives, carrying trauma and nightmares with them as they grew. When John came of age, he became a priest, and not a lot is known about his younger years. More is known about the cult itself, actually. They continued their guerrilla-style rituals and mass murder, ever searching for how they would bring about the Antichrist. Gary Miller took his place as the leader of the cult, all around him ever insistent that Gary was just a normal human being just like you and me. They eventually sought to bring forth a great demon called the Unspeakable, but doing this would require a powerful vessel. Gary's mother, Miriam, was far too old to be that vessel anymore, which would usher the Unspeakable into the world, but still she tried. The cult began using a women's health clinic as a way to get newborns, passing them through the hell portal on Miriam's face to usher on new demonic allies. Eventually, her attempts to bring forth more and more demons resulted in her body being broken. Yet still, she technically lived. Her body was kept underground at a secret lair the cult used as a ritual site of sorts, and Gary began seeking another impure vessel to perform the second death upon. In 1986, a 16-year-old gal named Amy Martin started to work at the clinic. This was during a time when women's health and access to abortion services were seen as icky and sinful, and oh how the times have changed, haven't they? Can't get a goddamn pap smear at Planned Parenthood without someone shoving a God hates you sign in your face. Amy's parents let her do her work, but her mother in particular was a bit judgy about it. She had seemed more worried about what her religious friends thought about her daughter's work rather than her actual daughter's happiness. But there was pain and sorrow in Amy's home. Her father, Bob Martin, was an advisor with the U.S. Navy. His work would sometimes take him away from home for extended periods, leaving Amy's mother, Cindy, to run the household. But Cindy had unaddressed mental health problems. By all accounts, she did her best, and she was a good mother to Amy, but beneath the surface was a torrent of pain within Cindy. She had miscarried twin boys late into her last pregnancy. They had already picked names for the twins, Nate and Jason they would be, and they had prepared a room for them in their home. This miscarriage, it took a devastating toll on Cindy, and she began to have delusions. She believed that the twin boys were alive and well. She talked about their playtimes, their birthdays, her concerns for them as though they were real, and Bob didn't really do much to help his wife. The family had at some point moved out to a very isolated property on Snake Meadow Hill Road. So Cindy didn't have access to friends or services that could intervene, at least not often. Amy was forced into homeschooling, removing her from her social circles and replacing it with loneliness. When Bob would leave home for work, he was abandoning both his wife and his daughter to suffer through Cindy's illness. It was tragic. Nobody helped Cindy Martin. It wouldn't be hard to understand how Amy struggled with her home life. At the clinic, she felt like she belonged and like she was doing something that really mattered. Gary Miller himself took notice of Amy and started grooming her as a potential impure vessel. She was vulnerable, young, impressionable, and she could be controlled. Amy's mother pressured her into stopping her work at the clinic, but Gary made sure to tell Amy that she belonged there no matter what her parents said and that she was old enough to make her own choices. 
At the clinic, she was welcome and a part of the team. It was validation that she so badly needed. Eventually, he decided that Amy Martin would undergo the second death ritual. Amy was invited to a get-together at the clinic one night, an invitation that she gladly accepted. And when she arrived, she was taken away by the eternal order of the second death to a prepared ritual site. Amy Martin underwent the second death, and it succeeded, just like it had with Miriam Bell decades ago. Amy Martin became the new vessel. Suspicion could not be raised, though. Amy had a family that would be expecting her to return. If she didn't get home from the clinic, her family might alert authorities. Her father was at home at the time, and he almost certainly had connections that could jeopardize the cult's secrets. So Amy was taken back home after the ritual was complete. Precisely what took place immediately after she got home is unknown. But it wasn't long before Bob and Cindy had Amy tied to a chair and were calling for help. Amy was violent, speaking perfect Latin, and saying words in a voice that was not her own. She knew things that she shouldn't have known. Bob and Cindy's desperation became so great that they contacted the Catholic Church. They weren't religious folks, but they believed that Amy needed a priest. An older man named Father Allred arrived at their house to investigate what was taking place. It certainly was not his first rodeo or his first exorcism. He went to the house a number of times to interact with Amy and determined that an exorcism was in order. The Vatican approved it, and on September 21, 1986, Father Allred went back out to the house one last time with a now 33-year-old father, John Ward, to assist him. John had never been part of an exorcism before, but he was only there to aid Father Allred if needed. When they got to the house, Bob and Cindy met them at the door, and they looked awful, like they were at the end of hope. Father Allred asked if they could move Amy out to a shed so they could carry out the rite away from the house and away from her parents, as what was going to happen could really appear to be cruel. But Bob and Cindy refused to let them take Amy out of the house. So Father Allred and Father John Ward went down into the basement and began the exorcism. When Father Allred commanded the demon to look at him, it and Amy complied and it greeted him. And then the horror began. Father Allred found that he couldn't handle Amy alone. Whatever was within her was far too powerful, so he called John to join him, to read the prayer of exorcism. And though John was frightened by what was happening, he complied and aided Father Allred. But Amy's parents couldn't stay away when they heard Amy's laughing and screaming. Father Allred ordered John to get them back upstairs. Whatever was within Amy wanted to harm them as well, and it would use their daughter's body to do so. John led Bob and Cindy back upstairs, leaving Father Allred all alone with the girl in the basement. As John turned away to go back downstairs, he overheard Bob say that that thing down there was not his daughter. And John didn't know what to say. He had no words of comfort or explanation. He just awkwardly excused himself and told them to pray for Amy. But back in the basement, it was quiet. There was no laughing or screaming, no Latin prayers. When John got back to Father Allred, he found the elder priest flat on his back with his arms outstretched, and Amy was gone. John took up Father Allred's crucifix, and he began to search for the girl. As he went, he saw the outline of a demon in the corners of the rooms, hiding in the shadows just out of view. Bob and Cindy weren't where he left them. No one responded to his calls. Now alone, John went through the house looking for Amy, and he finally found her in the attic. She greeted him in a voice that wasn't hers, and John begged her to return to the basement with him, but she responded in Latin that she could not go. Still, John asked her again, saying that they needed to make her better, but Amy, she invoked John's mother's name, Meredith. 
It was a cruel taunt, and with the terrible confirmation that he was not dealing with a human being anymore, John resumed the exorcism alone. And to the entity before him, this was funny. It was a joke, and it mocked John. He called one last time, desperate for anyone in the house to help him, to hear him, but nobody was coming to help him now. Father John Ward was no match for this. The demon, Amy, it overpowered him. When his mind returned, he was alone in the attic and Amy was gone. He walked the Martin home again and found the bodies of Bob and Cindy torn apart. And from the basement, he heard Father Allred's voice calling to him, asking him to come quickly and that things would be all right. John ran back with hope that somehow Father Allred was actually alive, but when he found him, there was no life. He was being used like a puppet to lure and taunt John. Amy was in control of Allred's corpse. She attacked John Ward once more just to dig in her heel one last time, pay one more great insult, break his spirit before killing him too. John prayed. He was afraid. He was so afraid. He just wanted to go home. He just wanted something to take him away from this place. And from that desperate plea, something hurt him. It presented itself before him as a white being of light, though it did not say who or what it truly was. It told John that if it saved him, it would be at Amy's expense. She would be abandoned, her fate sealed. And John, so consumed with fear, begged to just be taken away. He said he would do whatever the entity wanted. It made him swear it, and he did gladly. If that being was of heaven or hell, John didn't know, but he was delivered from the house. He walked outside and was met by emergency services that would take him away from this terrible place. The Catholic Church denied that the exorcism was approved. They denied all knowledge of it. John was stripped of his rank in the church. The events at the Martin House were widely covered up. Amy was tracked down and taken to the Yale Psychiatric Institute, as was John. When he first arrived to be interviewed and examined, John was nigh unresponsive. But when he started speaking, it was of exorcisms and demons. To his doctors, it sounded like the ranting of a madman, but John was clearly traumatized. And somehow, he knew that Amy Martin was nearby. For a full month, he underwent intense therapy. And on October 23, 1986, John wrote a completely lucid letter requesting to be released from the Yale Psychiatric Institute. He wrote that, with his doctor's help, he'd been able to understand that what had happened at the Martins' house wasn't due to demons or anything supernatural. John said that it was the result of Amy Martin being a violent youth that was driven to murder because of her controlling religious parents. And apparently, John's self-reported improvement was enough. He convinced his doctors that he was fine, and soon he was released. Over the next year, John's relationships and personal life slowly fell apart. He was no longer a priest, his relationship with his significant other began to crumble, and he began to think that the white being that he had encountered in the Martins' home was actually demonic, if not Satan itself. It's not known what he really did for the next year, but John became an adept exorcist and well-educated on many things demonic. And now we move to mid-1987, and we introduce a new person of interest. Two, actually. Father Garcia and young Michael Davies. Father Garcia was a trained and experienced exorcist, the real deal, and he brought a hardness to it, a vicious faith. He fought back evil to save the innocent, and in the summer of 1987, a boy named Michael Davies was placed into his care. The child was possessed by something horrific, and for three months, Father Garcia worked to save Michael, but the boy never got better. He eventually had to be bound. The demon within tried to manipulate sympathy out of Garcia, and Michael's body changed. 
he became a monstrous, stretched-out thing. By September of 1987, Michael Davies' parents were demanding their son's return, and the church commanded Father Garcia to turn him over to them, but Garcia refused. Michael was dangerous and looked nothing like his former self. He sent the letter explaining the situation, along with a terrible picture of Michael, then committed to another exorcism of the boy. What came next makes it easy to believe that the affliction of Michael Davies was tied back to the eternal order of the second death. Michael Davies broke out of his restraints and fled Father Garcia's home. Before Father Garcia could stop him, Michael murdered another tenant in the hallway and began to cannibalize them. Garcia was horrified and after a brief interaction, Michael jumped out the window and he fled. But Father Garcia wasn't one to give up. He began to hump Michael down. Meanwhile, at about the same time, Amy Martin broke out of confinement, and she went where any scared teenage girl would go. She went back home, back to Snake Meadow Hill Road, where the eternal order of the second death and Gary Miller would be waiting and watching to see what became of their wondrous vessel. And John Ward began to dream of Amy. It had been almost a full year since the terrible events at that house, and he had managed to cling to some bit of normalcy, but his dreams were too vivid. He felt a calling, Abandoning all others, forsaking the life that he was trying to have, John Ward put on his old priest attire, grabbed his crucifix, and returned to the Martin home on Snake Meadow Hill Road. When John arrived, the property was a mess. No one had bought the land, no one tended to what was left over, everything was abandoned to rot. As John walks about, remembering bits of the past and finding remnants of the Martin family, the deformed Michael Davies strikes at him from the shadows of the forest. Somehow, the boy had found his way here, no doubt called here somehow just like John Ward was. And though John may not realize it, if this demonic creature that was once the boy named Michael Davies is here, then an older, wiser, more grisly priest named Father Garcia will not be far behind. As John goes, Garcia will spot him, and he will watch over the younger man from a distance, see what he does, why he's here, and himself learning more about the Martin family. The main house is in absolute tatters. In just one year, the place fell to complete disrepair. John walks the rooms of the home, searching for God knows what. His journey takes him down into the basement, where one year ago he and Father Allred tried to save Amy. In the exorcism spot now is a splash of blood and demonic runes. From the shadows, something creeps upon him and takes his thoughts from him briefly. When he awakens, he's upstairs in a bed, and Amy Martin appears at the foot of it before vanishing again. She is here. He knows it now. He must compel her to appear to face him, so he walks the house searching for whatever has become of Amy Martin. After a number of confrontations, where he repels her back with his crucifix, he hears the attic door open, and he rushes upstairs. All he really needs to do is follow a trail of blood up into the attic where Amy is waiting with her face covered. She asks him if he thinks her face is pretty, and they share very few words before John engages the demon in a spiritual battle. He briefly uses his crucifix against her before she uncovers her head, revealing the terrible bloody hole upon her face, the result of the ritual called the second death, and then she becomes outright aggressive. For a while, the two of them tussle in the attic, John avoids her lethal lunges while pressuring the demon with his crucifix. In the years since they last met, John has become far stronger in his faith and knows what he must do. This time, he gains the upper hand, but rather than continue the showdown, Amy jumps out the window, and she vanishes into the darkness outside. Downstairs, John finds a shotgun and a message written in blood, kill her. 
It's not clear who planted the weapon and the message, but it's fair to assume that the cult is playing games with John. But John does not hunt Amy down in the woods. Instead, he takes the gun for protection, and he walks back to his car. He's had all that he can take of this place. He doesn't know what's real. He just wants to go home. As he approaches his vehicle to leave this terrible place, Michael Davies once again runs at him from the shadows, and John shoots the boy in panic. It stumbles into the road and is struck by a semi-truck, ending the terrible suffering of little Michael Davies. And Father Garcia, without a doubt, is watching this all happen. He tried to save Michael, but the boy was so far gone. Perhaps this was for the best. As John loads up and drives away, Father Garcia begins investigating this strange new cult. Over the next week, the Eternal Order of the Second Death committed crimes all around the state. John received correspondence from Father Garcia himself, making his presence known and presenting himself as a friend in the war to come. The two had not met face to face, but it made a strong impact on John. As John did his own investigation into the cult, he found himself alone and paranoid as hell. His own memories and thoughts of the horrible things of the cult consumed him. He delved into the history of Snake Meadow Hill Church, where orphans had been murdered back in the 1950s. He began piecing things together, and his dreams became so vivid, so vivid that it's almost like something divine or demonic was influencing John. One night, John's dreams took him back to the church, where the past and the present collide in his mind. He first awoke in a forest, in a formation of rocks that, if the points were connected, could form a pentagram. He walked his way through the dark woods into a cemetery. To unlock his way forward, John dreams that he must banish three demons around the area, bravely standing against the forces of hell. And when finally he does, he receives a key to a gate in the middle of nowhere. Now, he could choose to go back to that strange rock site, create a pentagram, engage in a ritual to summon a demon, but that would be aiding the enemy, wouldn't it? John decides not to tamper with such things, especially not demonic summoning. He takes the key and he unlocks the gate to nowhere. It reveals to him a new path forward, through a strange line of trees, an open field, and then Snake Meadow Hill Church, with the famous cornfield behind it. After the events in the 1950s, specifically the second set of orphan murders, the church was completely abandoned. Inside, it's falling apart, yet candles burn still. John sees events play out that he has read about, involving a three-man paranormal investigation group that came here to film. By their third night, two of them were trapped and one of them was missing. John meets a demon in a confessional booth who hears John's sad confession over the events at the Martin House and has a crisis of faith. The demon tells him to perform an act of contrition, bring it a child and then he will have peace. John read of a child out in the cornfields, the one that the staff member spotted five years after the orphans were killed by Miriam Bell. If John could banish a demon called the Spindly Lady, the child might be brave enough to appear and then he could lead it back to this demon. Hmm. John walks the rooms of the church and eventually he does face down the spindly lady. And then he goes to the field and he finds that child who runs away if John looks at them. He can take the child back to the demon in the confessional, give it the child, then go to the demon's lair and fight it, but he chooses not to do this. He will not do as the demon commands. He will not sacrifice a child to it. He instead moves on. The basement is now open to him. John descends into the underground. He learns of the sad fate that befell Father Clark. He walks the dark places alone, finds clues about Miriam Bell and her deeds here, and then finds a door leading out back into the forest. Once past, the door locks and he cannot backtrack, only forward now. He walks past a strange murder site, with a note that blames him for the killing of three people that were drug users and homeless. 
It's accusatory and it's taunting. And at the end, he sees in the purple color of Amy, I'm here, John. And all around him appears cultists, enacting some profane ritual upon him that turns him into a monster like poor Michael Davies. In this form, he can choose to reenact the murder of two people that he had read about in the papers. He can go up onto the highway as a demon and choose to end their lives, but John does not. He chooses instead to go in peace on to Candy Tunnel. These tunnels are troubling. According to what he had read in the newspapers, these tunnels were where a serial killer named Joe Bauman took refuge, feeding upon the most vulnerable of society, and the cops couldn't care less. But as John goes about his dream, he sees signs of the cult again, the eternal order of the second death, and there are clues all around that show him that they are responsible for what's happening here, and then a pit where surely a demon resides. John finds a note from an officer that was a part of a team that was sent in to pull the candy store killer Joe Bauman out. In it, the officer says that Joe Bauman wasn't real. What was within the tunnels was so much worse it wasn't human. It ate one of his comrades, pulled its carcass down into its lair. This isn't the work of a man. This was the work of a demon. Through the dangers of the demon-infested tunnels, John finds an underground facility of some sort, no doubt dedicated to the work of the Eternal Order of the Second Death. Cultists stalk the hallway, doors are locked, and there's darkness all around. But beyond these obstacles, John comes face to face with something from his past, a nun. Though she wears a mask of some sort, she hobbles towards him, muttering about a ritual. Father Garcia is not far behind, and he appears to save John from her approach. Garcia promises that where two or three are gathered in God's name, there will he be also. Together, they will face down this demon nun. Together, they will defeat her. As they walk, he reassures John that Amy could not be saved. He had done all he could, and maybe now her soul can find rest. It's an offering of peace to John's soul in his dream walk. Together, they confront this nun, a representation of Miriam Bell herself in John's worst nightmares. Father Garcia recites the 91st Psalm while John wards away all evils that approach him. Should John fail, Father Garcia will die. He's very vulnerable, so John must not let up on his assault against Miriam herself and any beings that approach Garcia. The three of them fight around the room in a marathon fight of good versus evil, and at least this time, good prevails. Father Garcia and John destroy the being, and in the final flash of John's dream, Miriam Bell reveals herself to be the unspeakable itself, and then he wakes up in his own bed, safe at home. It was all just a terrible nightmare, but so vivid, so memorable, so lifelike. As he walks the now lonely halls of his home, we get glimpses of his life now. His partner left him, there are rooms in his house that he refuses to enter, and awaiting him in the mail is a letter from Father Garcia himself, the real Father Garcia. They have not yet met face to face, but his note says that his soul can be saved to wait for his next letter and that they are watching him. John goes for a drive and he questions himself questions his faith. He doesn't know what's real anymore, but John believes that the twin boys, Amy's supposed brothers, Nate and Jason, they're real. Cindy Martin had mentioned them, though he never saw them. Maybe if he can find Amy's brothers and save them, then that can be his hope. That will be his goal, his great motivation. Whether John knows that they were delusions isn't known, but he latches onto it. He has to find those boys. He has to save them. And then things will finally be okay. We begin the final chapter within a dream, John remembering his time at the Martin home. When they first arrived, when Father Allred and Amy's parents were still alive, just before that ill-fated exorcism began, 
It's been about five weeks since he tried to perform a second exorcism on Amy back at her parents' home, and about a month since that extremely vivid dream that took him back to Snake Meadow Hill Church. In that time, his nightmares have continued to haunt him, and he still hasn't met Father Garcia face to face, but they have been in contact, tracking down the eternal order of the second death. The profane Sabbath, October 31st, is approaching, and they know that the cult is planning something. An older letter reveals that Garcia believes they're trying to summon a demon named Malthus, but he's not certain on where to go next. But on this day, a new letter has arrived from Father Garcia, telling John to go to the women's clinic where Amy once worked, to search it out and to see if he can find out more about this Malthus demon and see what other cult activities took place there. Well, at the clinic, he finds a police officer outside, kind of skulking about, who doesn't think that a priest belongs in a place like this, but he doesn't bother him beyond that. John makes it in through a broken window and starts finding notes from Gary Miller, though at this point, John doesn't really know that name. He doesn't know who Gary Miller really is. Apparently, they were a central figure in the day-to-day -day of the clinic. But if the goings-ons here were all linked to the summoning of Malthus, well, then Gary Miller is a name to be remembered. What's also worth remembering? Gary loves you. John finds a crowbar and goes to a boarded up door to try to force his way through, but a demon attacks him as soon as he's near. It straps him to a hospital bed and wheels him into the bowels of the building. When he wakes up, he's in a room with three other uh, corpse pile things, but it's so dark that it's hard to make out what they exactly are. He hears noises coming up from the hallway and pushes himself and his bed into a spot to hide. Something enters the room. Once its back is turned towards one of the gory body things, John shimmies his way down the hallway on the bed. He has to hide one more time before the assumedly really stupid demonic being goes back to what it was doing in the other room. And that cop comes downstairs and he frees John from the stretcher, asking what the hell is going on here? Together, they walk the halls of the clinic for a little while. They need to get out through the main door. And then that demon goddamn plunges at them through the window. This cop though, he gives zero shits about this thing. He starts unloading into it as John kites it around the room, and together they turn it into a pile of ick. John quickly pries the boards off the door and they get back outside, but goddamn hippies are torching the cop's car. He has to take off after him, not realizing that they're extremely violent cultists that are watching the building, leaving John alone in front of the clinic. And the cop, he kind of gets murdered in the back alley, like immediately by those damned hippies. But John has a choice. He can leave, or he can go back into the clinic and investigate a little bit more. Delve back into the darkness here. He decides that he'll just go back in one more time, head back downstairs really quiet, and see if he can find anything more. And to sweeten the pot, he gets back onto the stretcher and he shimmies around for a while, eventually finding that if he gets close to a previously blocked off door, well, it opens up for him. When he pushes himself through the door, he meets something or maybe someone they give a very interesting interpretive dance that's one part heffalumps and woozles and one part rorschach weirdness and you know on any other day we might be seduced but there are demons to hunt so now is not the time and i think john agrees he's pushed down a stairwell screaming the whole way down but down here he finds a new figure a woman who is taking care of some babies she seems nice enough at first, so John asks if she has seen the twin boys, Jason and Nate Martin, except, according to her, the children all belong to Gary now. Remember, he is a normal human being, just like you and me. She intends to use John as baby food, so he has to exercise whatever is within this woman and these supposed babies that try to crawl on him while he runs around the room. 
You see, if he hadn't come back, this would have never happened. He would have never met all these delightful baby things and the skeleton-faced woman. With this job done, John feels like his work here is finished. He didn't find the twins, but he banished the evil that remained within that old clinic. And as he goes back home, unbeknownst to him, at least for now, a seal breaks on a door far and hidden away. Time to call it a day. He remembers more of Amy's exorcism as he sleeps. Her manic laughter, Father Allred ordering him to do something to read from the Bible and aid him, and for a short while they work together. But Cindy and Bob hear their daughter's foul laughter and screaming and they just can't stay away. Father Allred ordered him to take them back upstairs and he complied, leaving the older man completely alone with Amy. John dreams of his return afterwards, of finding the body of Father Allred on the ground, and the realization that Amy was loose. But that's as far as his dream gets for now. The next morning, John has a new letter from an old friend, Lisa Pearson. They had known each other since they were children. They spent time in Snake Meadow Hill Church together. They were the lone survivors of Miriam Bell's murder plot. They loosely kept in touch through the years, but now Lisa is in trouble, so she reaches out to John. She knows that they are watching her at her apartment, and she gives him an address. She says that if she doesn't answer her door, he can get a key to her apartment from her friend Tiffany. And another convenient letter from Father Garcia confirms that there is some sort of Malthus summoning taking place at the complex. He needs to get there as soon as possible because Garcia can't. Responding to this is a twofold good deed for John. He's helping his friend and getting to investigate who they are. This is another lead on the eternal order of the second death, so he rushes to the address that Lisa gave him. He will very, very quickly realize that he is walking into a goddamn hive of demonic power and evil. At the mailboxes, he finds another note addressed to him from Lisa. It's just telling him that, ha ha, everything is fine, ha, don't worry about it. The note claims that Lisa isn't here, so he should just leave. Don't bother, just go. But John smells through the bullcrap and decides that he will do the exact opposite. Actually, thanks though. As he walks the halls, he finds open rooms and highly suspicious signs of violence that have taken place all throughout the building. Lisa mentioned her friend Tiffany, but he kind of pieces together that Tiffany was a trusted member of Gary Miller's inner circle, which means that this place really is a hotbed of cult activity, and this Tiffany lady has a huge issue with Amy being favored over her as the impure vessel for the ritual of the second death, and that she intended to do something about it. God, so much drama, even amongst Satanists. John drops by Tiffany's apartment to grab the key to Lisa's place, and there's a blood trail leading into the back room and something freaky going on with the TV. Worth looking into later, if possible. Within Lisa's apartment, he finds a strange seal on a door, which a nearby note by Gary Miller calls the Seal of Alu. It details how to break the seal, which involves finding a bloodstained knife and a face in the darkness. His first priority is finding Lisa, which means breaking the seal. The big question being, is there something in there with Lisa? Maybe a demon named Alu? He's seen a weird dagger back in 2A, but there wasn't blood on it, so he needs to keep looking. John learns about an elevator demon that he can summon, that there isn't a seventh floor, which means there absolutely is a seventh floor, right? It's all linked to a code that he finds on drawings, but it's not until he reaches the manager's office on the top floor that he gets a major lead, a dumbwaiter and a note on how to use it. Sacrifice what you cling to. So John puts his crucifix on it and he turns it on. And this changes the hallways. It forces him into the elevators, which take him, against his wishes, to the fourth floor, where his arrival has been anticipated. 
Next to a bloody mess in the hallway is a camera, and as soon as he has it, someone cuts the lights in the building. The flash of the camera is his only way to track where he's going now. He has no say in the path that he takes. He only has one way forward. And demons start chasing him through the hallway to force his pace. Remember being a kid and walking down a dark hallway and feeling the need to run a little bit in case there was something behind you? That's this, except there are literally demons screaming at John as he goes. He's chased all the way down into the basement where his crucifix awaits him. Once he has it, the lights return. Thank God. In the far room of the basement is a ritual circle and a mask and a note. The note is confirmation that Tiffany is a part of the cult and she is a real piece of work. Looks like her jealousy of Amy got the best of her and she decided to enact a ritual of some sort, which definitely can't be good, right? If she survived, then what is she now? John is able to cleanse that strange mask and finds that it undoes one of the symbols in Lisa's apartment. Halfway there, now he needs to find a bloodied knife, which might be that dagger that he saw earlier. As he returns to the ground level, he's assaulted by demons, not once, but twice. The first one he banishes away like the chump that it was, and the second one, not so much. The second one is Alu, probably sensing that he was there to tamper with some plans. It jumps into John as soon as he's off the basement stairwell, and John spews blood into the air. For a brief time, he comes face to face with the hallucination of the demon Malthus, the demon that the cult has been trying to summon. They stare each other down while John fights Alu out of his body. He manages to force it out, and he regains control over himself. He hobbles his way back to 2A, and he finds that dagger is now covered in blood. He cleanses it, and the second seal on the door in Lisa's apartment is undone. He can finally see what's within. Before rushing in, he fiddles with the elevator, summons a special demon that likes to play on it. He does some hide-and-seek with the demon around the complex, eventually defeating it, getting another drawing with special elevator numbers. He'll take care of that after finding Lisa, though. He's already taken long enough. The back room in her apartment is now wide open, and inside Lisa is waiting for him. He's so relieved to see that she's alright, but it very quickly becomes apparent that Lisa isn't really quite right. He asks her to leave with him, but what's in control of this woman? It's not Lisa. And thus begins another fight with another demon. It's the same one that jumped him after he left the basement, so this must be Alu itself. Lisa can absolutely die during this fight if John is possessed again by Alu and he doesn't control himself. He must fight off Lisa, fight the demon when it jumps away, resist its control, and deal damage to it all the while. After several rounds against one another, John banishes Alu and saves Lisa's life. They only have a few minutes to spare to talk to each other about what's going on here. Lisa was going to be used in some sort of a ritual to resurrect a demon, Malthus, and it was the man Gary Miller who was behind it. Lisa says that she'll be fine and tells him to get going. Now John can leave and be done with this place or he can go play with the elevator. Put in those numbers that he found on the drawings and see what the real secret of this place is. And of course, he goes straight for the elevator and starts pushing floor numbers coded on the drawings. It takes him up to the 10th floor, but there's a door open now that wasn't before. And at the end of the hallway beyond it is what John initially thinks is Amy Martin, but she says, no, she is the rejected vessel, the first human to willingly perform the second death on themselves to show that she was more worthy of being chosen than Amy Martin is. Her envy of the girl drove her to do this. And now this woman, Tiffany, is the daughter of the unspeakable. John and Tiffany have one hell of a brawl. It takes place all over and around the room. Her movements are at times unpredictable and quick. When he hits her enough, the souls of the victims that she sacrificed to perform the ritual are set free of her. They fight one another for what feels like an eternity before Tiffany is destroyed. 
Another failed vessel, another worthless disappointment to Gary Miller. With Tiffany's death, the cult activity here is fully destroyed. And there's suddenly a hole in the elevator that drops John down, down, down to the seventh floor. You know, the one that supposedly didn't exist. Within apartment 7A, he finds the partial corpse of something. It looks like one of the tenants, friends of Gary Miller. They were trying to resurrect their little boy. Gary had promised them that he could be brought back if they had enough bodies to carry out a ritual of some sort. Seems they weren't quite able to complete the replacement body and this was what was left. God, imagine the smell in that room. It's time to leave this damned place. Let the police sort it out. John's collected and completed everything that he needs to. With these successes, another seal on that door far and hidden away is broken. Time to go home and call it a day. That night, John dreams more about the Martin family incident. He remembers Father Allred lying on the ground, being alone in that house, unable to find Bob or Cindy Martin, and then facing Amy in the attic. She knew his mother's name, knew that she had died, and that John couldn't save her. She taunts that the soul of his mother is with the demons now, and defiantly, John resumed the exorcism just to be attacked by the thing that was Amy Martin. But his dream ends before the conclusion that night. Only one day remains now until the profane Sabbath. Father Garcia has delivered another letter to John, telling him that he has gotten reports of children at a particular daycare exhibiting strange behavior. And if his suspicions are correct, and the cult is using them to try to summon the demon Malthus, then Nate and Jason Martin might be there. Garcia tells him to get their stat and see what's going on. Well, when John arrives, there's some sort of craziness going on with the cops. They've got their guns pointed at the door, but no one is trying to move in to secure the building. No one's even watching the back entrance, so John just waltzes into the backyard and enters the building there. At first, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong, but that very quickly changes after a few rooms. Gary Loves Us is written on the wall in blood, and it looks like there's a ritual circle in the middle of a room. What's more concerning is there are no children in the building. The Eternal Order of the Second Death has been working this place for a while, using and hurting children to summon a demon. Their artwork on the walls is a testament to some of the weird activities and lessons that the children have been partaking of. And through their drawings, John figures out how to open a secret door leading into the underground. Now, he can choose to leave. John doesn't have to go down there. He can just go back out to his car and drive away. But there are children at risk, and what of the twin boys that he has been so hellbent on saving? John descends into the underground tunnels beneath the daycare and begins to search for the children. What he has found is a central operating area for the cult. There are notes about tier one, two, three acolytes and their obedience towards Gary, mention of experiencing the second death, and bits of information about the unspeakable. None of it is good. And to make things worse, it seems that this Gary Miller knows that John is here and is actually welcoming. He gives him a few tips on how to get deeper into the compound. It's like he wants John to be here. He gets caught up on a chair-flipping, swapping, idle puzzle of some sort, very confusing and convoluted. But for a while, John tries to figure it out. When he's deeply entrenched in the process and not really paying any mind to what's around him, a hooded man rushes at him and sticks him with a syringe. It happened so fast. Whatever was injected into him causes John's mind to warp and bend. He remembers bits of his childhood, the church at Snake Meadow Hill, he sees Miriam Bell and then Amy, even the unspeakable itself. And violent things follow in a haze of quick flashes that leave a disturbing mark and then he's back in his dream, the same one that he's been having each night. He's in the Martins' home on the night of the exorcism trying to find Amy. He finds the corpses of Bob and Cindy Martin murdered by their own daughter, and then frantic calls for help come from the basement. It's the body of Father Allred being used by whatever is within Amy like a puppet. 
to call John down here to torment him. When she rushes him, he regains himself. He's awake again, and he's someplace completely different now, a trail of blood near him. He follows it and discovers that, in his drug-fueled psychosis, he tore people apart. It's hard to say how many because they're all in pieces. One still yet lives, trying to claw their way to safety, and when they see John, they say, please, no. And there's no going back. He's committed to seeing this path to finality. A great infernal machine lies ahead, with commandments to deliver two unto Moloch's hands before opening his navel. Through the tunnels ahead, John starts finding items that look like they might be pieces to the Moloch puzzle. As John walks the corridors looking for more clues, he passes paintings of what look like Miriam Bell. One of them in particular seems to change each time he goes past it. Once he's done that enough, a most foul being begins chasing him through the halls. But John can use his crucifix against it. It can be damaged. After several touch-and-go interactions with it, John banishes the strange demon, and how odd that, once it's dispatched, the final seal on that door far and hidden away, it fades away. Something is now open to him, but what could it be? John finds two more pieces for the Moloch puzzle. One requires playing a game of red light, green light, another at the end of a long, creepy hallway being guarded by Creepy Finger Man. But with the three key pieces collected, that Moloch machine opens a new door to John, and deeper into this strange place he goes. It's convenient that a pivotal note awaits him after passing through. It's about how to destroy someone called the Mother, weaken her with the cross, and then set her ass on fire. Well, if John finds a mother of demons, he'll be sure to do just that, but for now, it doesn't mean a whole lot to him. This place is where the final tier of acolytes resided. Those who were most ready and eager to engage in the ritual of the second death. They were purely dedicated to Gary Miller and the cult. They wished to bring forth the unspeakable. They longed for the Antichrist, their broken, deformed, vile people that are beyond saving. John must once again cleanse three items, or maybe people in this case, to remove rune symbols barring his way forward. The place he's in now is a dark underground forest that's nigh impossible to see through. There are plenty of ghoulies in the dark that would love to just tear him apart. When all three targets are cleansed, a final door is set before John, his final dark descent. Perhaps beyond it, he'll find his answers. Several unmoving people are down here. They don't respond to John's presence. It's hard to know if they're even living. But the voice of a man greets him, asking John, How do you make a portal to hell? Sometimes it waits for someone who has already walked through it. Sometimes it opens itself inside the best darkest room where nobody can find it. And sometimes... This is Gary Miller, and in his presence, John remembers the final parts of what happened that night at the Martins' house. Gary is terrifying, and he's amused by John's demands for answers. As though he could command a man like Gary Miller, but he entertains the priest. He allows him to ask a few questions. Via different lines of dialogue, Gary reminds John that he is a normal human being, just like you and me, and his mission is to prepare the world for the Antichrist. That the twin boys, Nate and Jason, were never real, he knew they weren't, and yet he clung to hope. He says that Malthus is just another spirit who would prepare the way for the Antichrist. During the profane Sabbath, Gary and Malthus would see the Antichrist brought forth. Oh, and 
Malthus is already here. Gary explains that Amy Martin was the perfect victim or vessel for the ritual of the second death, and finally he spells out how the ritual of the second death creates a portal to hell upon its victim. But he's done entertaining the priest, at least for now. They've shared enough words and it's time to put an end to this. Gary and John begin their fight. Though Gary is frightening, he relies mostly on the summoning of others to do his dirty work. Without them, he wouldn't be nearly the challenge. He uses spiders and demons to chase John and knock him down. And while it is a tense exchange, Gary Miller is a quick takedown. He takes one last lunge at John, only for Father Garcia himself to finally make his presence known. He loads Gary up with buckshot and sends his pitiful ass scurrying down the hallway. This is the first time that the two priests have met face to face, but they don't have time for a proper greeting. Father Garcia explains that the source of the demonic activity is here. The way there was once held closed by symbols that John has banished each night. If John hadn't gone back and faced down what was in the basement of the women's clinic, defeated Tiffany at the apartment complex, banished the great demonic being in the underground tunnels, then they wouldn't be able to reach it, the crucible. Garcia says that he will stay up top to keep cultists from following him, but John must do this alone. He must go down into the crucible and face whatever is down there. Within the crucible is either a recreation or a delusion of the Martin home. There's a note detailing Miriam Bell's successful ritual of the second death. She is the mother of demons, the supposed mother of Gary Miller, the cause of so much pain and misery. Through the attic, John finds his final destination, the misshaped form of Gary Miller in front of his mother, Miriam Bell herself. In her old age, she tried to become the unholy trinity, the vessel that would bring forth the unspeakable, but she was far too old. They found and used Amy Martin instead, and Miriam's failing body was kept down here within the crucible. Gary knows that he's gone as far as he can go and that only one of them is going to make it out of this alive. And then, one final, terrible revelation. Well, eat shit, Gary. John fights this broken down carcass of Gary Miller all around the room, and admittedly this time around he's much more formidable. This is a true life or death for both of them, and neither is willing to concede an inch. All the while, the failing body of Miriam Bell watches their exchange. Gary once again resorts to calling upon the demon Malthus to aid him, but John has been through so much that he dodges and runs between their attacks like a seasoned professional. He handles both Gary and Malthus, absolutely bodying them both into oblivion but there's still one option before them, Miriam Bell herself. The two demonic beings jump into the decrepit woman's body and take control of her. It's one final showdown, but John isn't alone anymore. His faith has carried him to a new level. When he is hit, John remains standing through his faith and prayer to God, acknowledging that this being is too powerful for him alone, yet his faith endures. He inflicts so much harm upon the infested Miriam Bell that it pushes Malthus and Gary out of her, but only temporarily, Remembering that note and seizing the opportunity, John runs towards a fire source, he ignites himself in flame, and he runs to Miriam Bell, setting the old hag on fire. The flames covering his body fade, and he watches the elderly woman thrash around and then explode. Good God, it's finally over. Gary is brought to his weakest possible state. Malthus is gone. Miriam is gone. His cult destroyed. And all that's left now is Amy Martin herself. What's left of Gary Miller starts dragging itself towards Amy, speaking Latin, fully expecting salvation through her. But Amy Martin has control for now. She's powerful, she's lucid, and she deems Gary to be a failure. An arm extends from the hole in her face and it takes Gary. It pulls him back into hell where he belongs. John and Amy have a brief moment together. Her face and her words are her own. John begs her for forgiveness. 
He couldn't save her, but Amy stops him and tells him it's all right. It's over now. They can't hurt her anymore. He's been so brave, and now it's time to finally finish this. John finishes the exorcism started one year ago. He banishes all evil from Amy's body, and with this final act of peace and love, she can finally ascend to heaven. No longer will the terrible cult and its demons hurt her. John and Garcia find their way out of the underground and the daycare together. In their absence, the cultists and the police killed one another. They depart, leaving behind mass carnage. At the car, John confirms that it is done. Malthus and Gary are gone. What he encountered was unspeakable. But Garcia tells him that what he destroyed was a powerful demon, yes, but it wasn't the unspeakable itself. He needs powerful warriors like himself to fight against the unspeakable, to stop the Antichrist. Lisa appears and tells John that he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to keep fighting. He can let this all go now and he can find peace. But John knows what's really out there. How could he ever find rest after all of this? John can choose to give up the fight or he can choose to fight with Garcia. And he's been through so much. He's seen so much. John knows that the devil is real, just as real as God itself. And if he won't stand against the forces of evil, then who will? John chooses to go with Garcia. He will deny himself peace so that others might not suffer. And while John may not fully understand everything that's happened, he can only have faith that he did the right thing.